Welcome to Critical Thinking Required, hosted by LBW. Our goal is simple. We want to challenge you to think differently about finance and business. Join us and start the journey today. Welcome to Critical Thinking Required. You're with your hosts, myself, Tim Bickmore, and my two colleagues, Nathaniel Leach and Dan Weiss. And today we're going to be talking about a recent change to the Federal Reserve um, policy mandates, which is always exciting. At least for me, I get excited about this. It's it's interesting to see the moves they're making um, really, and they're making moves with the recent events with COVID and, and the recession that we, we have experienced over the last few months. So to kind of give our listeners just a little bit of, of background, uh, the, the Federal Reserve had recently come out a few days ago and stated that they're going to change the part of their mandate or part of their policy and potentially allow inflation to go above 2% for a time being without increasing the federal funds rate. That is a, as that is a very large policy change. And that's really what we want to talk about today and how that potentially can affect the stock market, you know, someone's personal financial situation and even business finances. So I'm going to let Dan captain the ship today and I'll let him take it off. Do you want to start perhaps talking about, well, I guess, do you have more to add about that first, as far as the loosening and some of the basics involved in that? And and I think from there, we'll go and talk about some of the reserves um, dual mandate policy. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of leading into the, the dual mandate policy, in order to really understand what the Fed change really means, you have to understand how the Fed operates or what the objective of the Fed is. So as Dan just mentioned, the Federal Reserve really has what's called a dual mandate policy. And that's quite unique, actually, across the world, because what they're doing is they're focusing on two different objectives. Objective one is what they would say is price stability. And, and objective two is maximum sustainable employment. So they're, they're going to use their tool set to make sure that both of those are being achieved. So price stability, what they mean by that is they want to try to keep the inflation, long-term inflation um, projections around 2%. That's really what they would like to see over the long run. And what they just did mention in their new policy mandate is that's on average. So that's a really big deal, and that's what they really will be focusing on. And they'll make adjustments depending on where they see inflation going and where it is currently. The second piece to the puzzle is maximum sustainable employment. So what's interesting about that is (laughs) depending on what economists you read or who you talk about, it's a very difficult measurement to actually um, look at because it's always changing. Uh, You know, not to get too much into the weeds, but it's really an economic term called the natural rate of unemployment, which is a theory about how you can find out where the real unemployment figure should be, should be, should stand. Um, And really those, those, those objectives are really important to understand because what it really leads into is because the fed now is willing and is is saying, Hey, even though our target is 2% inflation, if we go above 2% inflation, we're actually not going to start trying to pull back or, or increase interest rates, right? Increase the federal funds rate. We're actually going to allow it to inflation to actually be higher than 2% for some time. That is, that is what they're saying, which means that people keep asking, well, where are interest rates going to go? Well, if they continue to hold the federal funds rate down to at, at near zero levels, that means 
interest rates on all other instruments probably will not be increasing anytime soon. Um, and, and it really is a, and it's a big policy change. So it, it's, again, it's fascinating that they've really made this adjustment. Part of the other piece to the puzzle when it comes to the second objective is, you know, Fed Chair Powell has come out and said that inflation was not ticking up when we were actually at really full employment prior to COVID. And that we weren't seeing the inflationary pressures like we were supposed to see or the projections were supposed to say. So now they've come back also on that and said, well, look, you know, maybe we can actually run it at lower unemployment rates and not see the inflationary pressures, which also I think is as a reason behind why they've decided to adjust their their overall policy, um, which we can get into uh, more depth in that in here in just a minute. Well, Tim, you knocked that out of the park. Nathaniel, do you have anything you want to add to that? I don't know whether I should discuss this now or wait till the end, but there are just a few things that that one should take into consideration. What Tim just spoke of is the general consensus of what the end result will be as a result of these new policies. That's not to say that that's what's going to happen. For example, the concept that interest rates will stay low for quite some time, it's not an inaccurate statement. However, that doesn't mean that it could not come to pass in that it is conceivable that interest rates could rise because the Fed doesn't have complete control of the interest rates. However, people may like to think that that be the case. What has control over the interest rates is inflation. And if you have inflation, then you're going to naturally see interest rates rise as in market forces will determine that. So, the Fed may try its best to to get the inflation up as a result of their 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 in, uh, interest rate policies, and perhaps what what I've heard uh, that could happen in the the value investing blogosphere is that what could happen is that interest rates could actually get away from the Fed as a result of inflation running rampant. So these are things that while the intent is there. And with, with this new concept, with this new mandate, um, or revised mandate, one could say, uh, it does carry with it some unknowns that could occur. Yeah, Nathaniel brings up an excellent point, and I completely agree with him. If inflation does tick up, you may see interest rates follow because you really have those kind of work in conjunction with one another. And I think he also is accurate when he's saying that it may get away from the Fed. It's an excellent point. And, I, and, and to, to kind of further expand upon that, what the Fed's really looking to do is they've come back out within their policy mandate and they've said, because inflation has been below 2% for so long, it's been below their target for so long that they want it to go above 2% to create an average of 2% over the long run. So that's the, one of the reasons why they want to allow it to go above 2% is because they're looking at an average, not just necessarily at that time. So it is definitely a game they can play. And, and to add on to that as well, is there's been some writings about also on the negative saying if it, it really creates more uncertainty for the Fed policy because they're saying like, well, you know, like, like Nathaniel just mentioned, let's say inflation gets to three, four, five, and all of a sudden inflation starts running away. 
because of all this quantitative easing, which people are saying could happen, then are they going to come back and all of a sudden start increasing the federal funds rate to try to slow and calm the economy back down? Um, that might be a thing. So one of the, neg- the negatives to the policy is that it creates uncertainty because now people aren't quite sure when the Fed will pull the trigger on starting to increase rates relative to inflation. And as we all know, the market hates uncertainty. So that is one of the other negative effects to what they're trying to, the, the, to the new policy mandate. That's a great transition to the next question, Tim, which would be this, what are the tools that the Fed have to use to do the job that they've been obligated to do? Yeah, so the, the Federal Reserve really has a, a, a quite a bit in their tool bag. Um, and right now with the federal funds rate, I think I just want to reiterate, just like Nathaniel mentioned, is they do not have control over the mortgage rates that you're receiving or the business loans that you're receiving. What they're doing is they're kind of controlling interest rates through a secondary mechanism, which is the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate for our listeners is the rate at which banks can lend to each other. And so the banks are required to have so much reserves on hand. And if they don't have enough at the end of the day or they need more, what they'll do is they'll go to other banks to loan that money from them. And then that's the rate that the Federal Reserve is is moving. They're moving that up or down. So it's the cost of money to the bank, which then they can either pass it on to the consumer or not. So it's not a direct change of going in and the Fed saying, well, I'm going to change mortgage interest rates to 6% it's really more of an indirect effect that then trickles into the lending market. So like I mentioned, Nathaniel is hundred percent correct when he says the feds don't have direct control over that. So the federal funds rate, when they adjust that, that they can either adjust it up, which creates, you know, more cost to the bank, which again, then increase interest rates and so on and so forth, or they can then decrease it. That's one lever that they can move. Another lever that they can get into as well is um, what's called quantitative easing or, or bond buying programs um, or, or security buying programs at this point where we've seen some of those as well. And what they're doing there is they're going out to the private market and they're, and they're purchasing certain securities from the private market. So to, to put it very simply, when the Federal Reserve buys a bond, for example, what they're doing is they're giving cash to the, to the seller. So the seller's receiving cash, and then the Federal Reserve's now receiving that debt instrument in hand. So they're providing what's called money supply or money to the private sector or to, or to certain sectors in the, in the market. So it's increasing money supply, which then theoretically they can use that money for investment in different things, right? It's providing liquidity. So that's another mechanism that the Fed can use in order to either you know, stimulate the economy, provide more cash, or they can start selling their own bonds back to the market, meaning they're going to start taking cash back away, right? So when they sell it, they're selling the debt instrument and receiving cash back to themselves. So it's just two different, there's, those are just two different mechanisms that they can utilize in order to, again, to try to speed up, provide growth to the economy or slow it down during recession or during expansion time. Because again, they don't want inflation to get out of hand. Inflation's purchasing power risk. And again, that's part of their mandate is price stability. It helps create price stability in the markets over the long run. Um, so they'll use those two different tools, which then goes back to what they're focusing on the specific change in the mandate is more of the federal funds rate, that mandate, the 2% inflation, even though they can also try to control some of that with the inflation metrics through quantitative easing and bond buying and purchasing and selling. 
Now, these tools are often misunderstood, understandably so, by the general public. And we, uh, you did a great job of explaining that, Tim. You know, we when when the federal funds rate was changed back, and I believe it was March, uh, people expected to see those mortgage rates immediately adjust. And I think it's very um, there's definitely a disconnect there, where really it's not that the Fed is controlling mortgage rates, like Tim said. It's that banks respond to the Fed's decision, but those are not directly correlated events. And at some point in time, like we saw in March, even though we saw rates eventually go down, um, at a certain point in time, a bank may not be able to cut their rates any lower and still survive long-term. So then they just simply don't do it, but often misunderstood. And so I appreciate you breaking that down. Okay, well, this of course has an impact on a number of different factors, people, people that are not quite here yet, right? The next generation that is, the stock market in general, inflation. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that before we close out this podcast. And why don't we start with what this new policy might do to say impact the stock market? Yeah, I mean, Nathaniel, I hope chimes in after I give my two cents. But overall, what's interesting about interest rates when it comes to the stock market is interest rates also affect saving instruments such as the treasuries, right? So the 30-year treasury, the 20-year treasury, which a treasury is a United States government security, which is quote unquote guaranteed or backed by the faith of the US government. It's it's what most people will use in modeling as a risk-free asset, even though I will say there is no such thing as a truly risk-free um, security, but it's probably the closest things you can get within the world right now. Um, and so, inflation, like Nathaniel said, does tie to interest rates. So if, if, if inflation is low, interest rates will be low. And when you're looking at modeling out from a stock price perspective, and you're using risk-free rates, if you really start running the numbers, and for example, what's called a discounted cash flow model, if you have a lower interest rate or growth rate or expected rate of return, that actually will result in a, in a higher price today, right? And not to get into obviously the absolute details, but it will it will increase the price. So when you look at that and you compare what the stock market prices is today with lower interest rates, with lower inflation, the stock market in general, right? And I'm maybe referencing the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, may not look as, ex- as expensive as one may think. However, the question is, is it appropriate to use current rates in your modeling, right? That's really the biggest question that you have to kind of answer for yourself. Um, so it can make the stock market actually not look extremely expensive. Now, to take it a further step, if you're looking at the micro side, if interest rates truly do stay low, right, relatively speaking over history, so again, maybe they climb to 3 to 4%, those rates in the bond market are still extremely advantageous for a company to go and leverage themselves or get access to that capital because it's a really good rate to grab. Um, and then maybe relative to, to refinancing their current debt loads. So what that does as well is it can provide easy access to capital and that capital then potentially if reinvested appropriately can increase the stock price. But it also can create a negative effect where people may misuse that debt and over leverage themselves. And when we we're talking about quantitative easing, if you hold the theory that we are going to see increased inflation because of how much money we've been quote unquote printing, 
then you could also see if inflation gets away from some of these companies, it could be very, very scary for some of the corporate bond space. So, you know, the stock market is going to react to it. And the last thing I'll mention as well is that because interest rates are so low, again, across saving instruments, debt instruments, it's very hard to find what's called yield, right? Or an interest rate that you can then own and then receive from, an, you know, a security. If you can't find that from a fixed income security, what people are then going to do is they're going to start putting more money into the stock market, into equities, dividend payers, which is also going to potentially inflate the price of those stocks because they're looking and searching for what you know we call yield. And that also could be a potential negative effect when it comes to where do I put my money when I can't make anything on a 30-year, 20-year treasury. So those are just a few different pros and cons to if interest rates really were to stick low for the time being in the stock market specifically. Nathaniel, you got a few cents to share? Uh, just to tack on to what Tim was saying, generally, sp- historically speaking, the stock market has done well when inflation rises, which is very interesting because, as Tim did mention just now, when you have, uh, if interest rates were to rise as a result of inflation rising, then what actually does happen is stock prices typically do come down, which is very interesting because it speaks to, uh, when you see that historical change, it really speaks to the types of companies that you own within the stock market. What are the stocks what are the companies that do well in periods of rising inflation? It's not going to be all of the stocks that comprise of the S&P 500. So this is where it really becomes important to be a stock picker. This, in, a, in an inflationary environment, it is typically a stock picker's market. So obviously some of this is evident, but how does this affect individuals and companies? The only thing I'd add to the individual space from a financial planning um, lens is um, it's it's very, you know, having lower, obviously, inflation. As, you know, I, I was going to say it's advantageous for the younger generation, but in all reality, it is potentially advantageous for the older generation because their purchasing power isn't being eroded, right? If you have extreme inflation, your purchasing power, meaning the dollar tomorrow is worth less than the dollar today, um, it could actually be very detrimental, obviously, to somebody in retirement, uh, depending on how their assets and their financial position. But if you look at it just for, for specifically on certain things, such as you know buying a home, getting good rate. I mean, the rates that you can lock in today, historically speaking, are just killer. I mean, it's just it's just an opportunity, right? And it's and it's great to see. Um, but then if you're in retirement and you're looking for yield. It's like you're swimming in a in a pool with with nothing around you. You just can't find anything. It's extremely difficult, and you have to then extend in some riskier areas if you really really wanted to achieve that. So, um, the effect on individuals that if rates continue to stay low, I, I think it really is just dependent on if businesses want to take advantage of that capital. Maybe you know you see you know getting through this recession, getting people back to being employed. Um, but again, depending on your, your your school of thought on economic policy, does this then affect the quote unquote next generation? 
in the sense that, and we have hyperinflation, like we saw, you know, 70s and 80s. And that is a whole different ball of wax that obviously the Fed doesn't want to see either. We don't want to see deflationary pressures. We don't want to see extreme inflationary pressures. We just want to see a nice 2% on average over the long run. To, to round it all up, it's, it's not as simple as it sounds. The, the Fed has multiple levers at its disposal, but there's only so much that it can do. So for an investor to put all of their stock, so to speak, all of their belief into the Fed is a mistake. You have to be rational in your understanding of what the Fed can actually do and then what the market can actually do in the sense that there are multiple factors that drive the U.S. market, the global market. You have to be aware that there is a number of pieces out there that you may just not have a complete understanding of. And that's why when it comes to the way that we operate, we're always looking for opportunities where we can build in a margin of safety when purchasing securities to make sure that we're accounting for these unknowns. For example, COVID. Nobody could have seen COVID itself coming. Now there were warnings of how a pandemic could harm the world, but COVID itself wasn't actually seen coming down the pipe. So it's events like these that can act as catalysts that can change the shape of the, the markets and the economy yeah, so I guess I'm next when it comes to final thoughts. And, you know, I, the, the policy change, the mandate change is, is interesting. Um, economics is, 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 is fascinating to learn about. It's an, it's an excellent way to try to understand a very complex situation or complex um, organization. But as you can tell, I, I keep saying, depending on who you, you read and think about, it's not a clear-cut answer on what's going to be, what's going to happen or, or what is, is the case is true. You know, what is truth? So you just have to be very cautious when you start reading about different things. When you see the Fed policy mandate come out, don't always just get stuck on one side of the story. Make sure you try to read each side of what's really going on. What are the true impacts? Understand the fundamentals of how the monetary policy works on how the federal government actually runs and works and, and see both sides of the story because you can get fear-mongering, I think, on each side. Um, and, and it's important to try to just come up with your own conclusion on what's going on. And I, I say that with some hesitancy because I enjoy this topic. But if you guys have, if anyone, our listeners do have questions, we're always happy to talk about it. I'm going to echo some touchings on some themes we just heard between Tim and Nathaniel. Although the definition of what the Fed scope might be very clear and concise. It's definitely not. And they often become a scapegoat very easy for things that are happening inside of, uh, inside of the country's economics, uh, inside the country's monetary policy. They, they really may have very little control over or, or involvement in what that topic might be. Their role is extremely important but it's not all encompassing. I don't know who would ever want that job to be Fed chairman. It's kind of like my thoughts on presidency. I don't know whoever really wants that job. I'm surprised that people do. Best of luck to them. 
Thank you again all, to all of our listeners for spending time and listening to three guys talk about their love for finance. Have a great evening. Thank you for taking the time to start your journey of thinking differently and listening to LBW talk about stuff they love. Until next time. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual on any specific security, on any specific broker-dealer or custodian. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry to determine which investments, broker-dealer or custodian may be appropriate for you Consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC. Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management, LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advice may be rendered by Leach, Bickmore, and Weiss Wealth Management LLC unless a client service agreement is in place.